Today's scripture reading is from Mark 11:27 through 12:12. 12, 12. Hear the word of the Lord. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Then Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and the Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. The word of the Lord. It's great to see you on this uh, spring morning. And back in the winter, in January, I was in a large room with 200 people from every demographic in Montgomery County. 
And we were told to sit there quietly, to turn off our cell phones, and wait. And it took about an hour after everyone had come, and all was quiet until a loud voice called out, all rise, and we did. Then the judge appeared and informed us about our summons to be part of a state grand jury. The judge was kind but forceful as she um, informed us, she warned us about what was expected of those who would be chosen for this responsibility. She then asked each person if they had a legitimate excuse not to serve. And I was excused due to my pastoral duties, but to be honest, for me, those two hours in that large room became a fresh reminder of the authority of one person over many. Because I was excused, and then I you know, walked out of the courtroom in Norristown, her authority over me at that point ended and uh, even though it felt heavy, it was only for about two hours. So I walked back to the parking garage, got in my car, began to drive away, and I felt like my life was, you know, like back under my control now. But then I realized that I was still under authority. It wasn't the authority of the judge, but of the state because I noticed the sticker on my windshield said I was soon due for an inspection of my car. And of course, I had to watch my speed also. So once again, I realized that I was still under authority. So I got home mid-morning, and I was greeted by our puppy. And as usual, she wanted to play with her toy, you know, fetch and all that. So our dog thinks that she has authority over her toys. They're not for another dog, and sometimes they're not for us either, even though she wants, you know, wants us to play with her on it. But of course, we have authority over our dog, which includes her toys, since sometimes we put those toys away. And our dog, I think, reluctantly realizes that she also is under authority. So, you see, we can't get away from it. Every one of us, every one of us, has authority over something, but there are limits to our authority, which means that there is an authority over us. We are not ultimate authorities, even though at times we may think we have supreme power. I'm reminded of the example in Jesus' life at the end of his life. We're talking about Holy Week. You remember when Pilate says to Jesus in John 19, don't you know I have authority to release you or execute you? Remember what Jesus said? He says, you don't have any authority except that which is given to you by my Father. It's a good reminder. So, today's two stories from Mark's Gospel 
are about authority. Jesus' authority. Now, remember the context. You've been with us for a few weeks, or if you know how Holy Week goes, you know that uh, a few days before this, Jesus had ridden in on Palm Sunday to the city claiming the rights of divine kingship. Pastor Jim preached on that a few weeks ago. We, we will actually celebrate it next week. We're a little out of sync in our look at Mark's gospel. But what happened right after that? Instead of going to the Roman palace to claim governmental rights, he goes to the temple and cleans out those money changers who were in it for profit. So you could understand that uh, this man from Galilee, who is he coming into our territory, said the Jewish leaders. How dare he? No wonder then that Mark's passage today talks about Jesus' next entry into the city. And if you've been following Mark's gospel, this is really the, the way he's showing us who Jesus is. In the first uh, seven chapters, Mark told us a lot about Jesus' authoritative teachings, his miracles, to say, who is this man? And then in chapters 8 and 9, Mark moved to some passages where Jesus was calling people to follow him, not casually, but to deny themselves to take up their cross. And this is before Jesus died on a cross. Everybody knew that was saying, you've got to be willing to be executed to follow me. That's a high bar, isn't it? And then in Mark 10 through 12, these chapters that we're in right now, Mark shows us opposition, how people resist this authority and the call to follow. So, uh, you ready to look at these two accounts? And uh, we'll walk through them to see how Jesus tackles the struggle head on with these Jewish leaders who claim to have God's authority. And this first one in verses uh, 27 through 33, right at the end of chapter 27, um, say it so clearly. So here's how it goes beginning in verse 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and when Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the leaders, the Sanhedrin is what the Jewish leaders called themselves, the leadership body, the council. There were 70 men composed of chief priests. That, those are the men that controlled the temple complex. The high priest, and he was one man, of course, high, and then the other priests, and it was a lucrative business venture. You gotta believe this. That's why Jesus had to go in and tell those money changers, get out of here. They were taking a cut on every animal that was sacrificed. And you say, hold it, That's, they're priests. Well, yeah, but haven't you ever heard of preachers in it for the money? <laughs> That's what was going on in Jesus' day. And then it says, the teachers of the law, some of the translations would have scribes. These are the experts in the Torah. They knew it from A to Z, backwards and forwards. They knew exactly what God's word required. 
And then it says the elders. These are the lay leaders, the Jewish men, who for one reason or another rose to authority to control the temple complex. And when they saw Jesus, the first thing they say in verse 28 is, and I'm sure they're pointing their finger at him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? And Jesus calmly didn't just snap back. Instead, he said, well, I'll ask you a question. And rabbis were known for doing that. You answer a question by asking a question. It's a way to dig a little deeper. In fact, that's a good way, if you're ever in conversation with somebody who's combative, to kind of, all right, let's cool it for a minute. Time out. And his question goes like this. John's baptism, remember John the Baptist, the man who came before Jesus, called the Jewish people to repent because the Messiah was coming. The people loved him. Jesus says, was he from God? Or was he just, you know, like some crazy guy out there in the wilderness? And verse 31 says, they discussed it. So here's this huddle. Right? They could smell Jesus' question was a loaded one. And they said, you know what? If we say John was of God, then Jesus is going to come back and say, then why didn't you follow me? Because John pointed to me. So we're not going to go there. All right. So if we say John is just a one-off, oh, the people won't like that because they think John is from God. Oh, what do you say, guys? Let's just play the ignorance card. So they come back and they say, we don't know. <laughs> now, so here's these authoritative men in their robes, no doubt, maybe turbans on their heads for sure, the high priest, and this humble rabbi who had just messed up their money asked them a question that stumps them. Ooh, can you feel their inner angst? Especially when Jesus says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Ouch. And of course, you know what that is going to lead to. Jesus is fueling the fire for his crucifixion on Friday. This is probably on Tuesday or Wednesday. So he doesn't answer their question. He's, he kind of frustrates them. But then it says in chapter 12, he told a parable to them. Oh, so he doesn't directly answer the question because the answer is obvious. But he tells this parable. Now, again, because we're not used to agriculture, it sounds a little strange to us. A vineyard. I don't know if you grow grapes. Maybe you do as a hobby. But... In the ancient world, olive trees and vines, right? Olive oil and wine, that, were, that was, and bread, of course, the staples of food and drink. So everybody knew what a, what a vineyard was, a place to grow grapes. And Jesus is going to tell this parable, and each person or groups of people in this parable is going to stand for some one or some group of people. 
That's the way parables work, right? They're analogies set alongside reality. So I'll, I'll explain it in a minute here, but you probably know that the, um, the way it works here is that God is the owner of the vineyard, and uh, as it goes on here, the farmers are tenant farmers. Now, a little explanation here, too. They didn't own the vineyard. They were just the hired people to work on the vines and the grapes and make them, you know, grow and then harvest them and so forth. Tenant farmers. That's the way the NIV translates it. And then you've got servants who are sent by the owner to collect the profits at the end of the harvest. Servants. And then finally, you've got the son of the owner who will come as like a last relief effort here. Please, my father wants the prophets. Now, can you match up who's who? As I said, God is the owner. The tenant farmers are these Jewish leaders who are kind of in charge of the, the Judaism of Jesus' day in the temple complex. Who do you think the uh, servants are that come to collect they're the prophets. So what is Jesus doing? He's rehearsing the whole Old Testament history where God gives the Jewish people his presence in the temple. He gives them leadership over the temple, but the leaders don't do what God wants, him, wants them to do. They're making money off of this thing. They're not serving the real owner or God. And of course, you know who the son is. So here's the story once again. A man planted a vineyard, and he put a wall around it, and he dug a pit for the wine press, and he built a watchtower. And then he rented out the vineyard to some farmers, and he moved to another place. He's a good businessman, right? He's got these different ventures. And at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed, and he sent another servant to them, and they struck this man on the head, treated him shamefully. So he sent another, and this one they killed. And he sent many others, and some of them they beat, and others they killed. Pause. This isn't working. So he had one left to send, a son whom he loved a beloved son. And when you're hearing this, you're also hearing what was said about Jesus, right? From the Father at his baptism, here is my son whom I love. The Spirit of God comes on him. And when he comes, the people say, this is the heir, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. That's pretty clear, right? And it was clear to you, for sure it was clear to those leaders <laughs> that Jesus was telling the parable to. I mean, it was one thing that he frustrated them with a question they couldn't answer. Now, <laughs> he's making sure they see themselves clearly in the story and they see who he claims to be. And then there's one more thing Jesus does, being a good Jewish rabbi. He quotes the Jewish Bible 
back to these Jewish leaders. So he pulls a verse from Psalm 118 and switching the metaphor from agriculture to uh, architecture, from farming to building, he, he quotes the verse, you see it there in verse 10, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. So again, what is this all about? Because if you're into building, or if you know anything about the way houses or you know, churches and buildings are built around here, we use a lot of lumber and wood because it's cheap and plentiful. Maybe cinder block for a foundation. But in the Middle East, where trees are scarce, especially in the ancient world, trees were used for agriculture, not you know, lumber for building. They built with stone because stone was everywhere. You just scratch the soil, there's limestone underneath. And they knew how to excavate, carve these large blocks. And uh, that was, a, and it still is, a main way of manufacturing and building buildings. So Jesus quotes from a psalm that says, here's some guys, you know, they're out there putting this building together, and they're picking up stones, right? Just like a mason, you know, pick one, put it down, pick another one. So they, it's not a little brick, it's a big boulder. They, they look at one, they say, nah, put that one aside. Give me one that's a little truer, a little more rectangular or square. The stone that the builders reject ends up being the cornerstone. What does that mean? Well, in order to make a building exactly plumb in one direction, in another direction, and then vertically, if you had a cornerstone that was true and lined up all the other stones, your building would be true. The walls wouldn't fall in or out. Make sense? So Jesus says, I'm quoting to you a verse from your Bible about me. I am the stone that is meant to be the cornerstone of God's new temple, God's new building. But you are rejecting me. And verse 12 says, then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. Uh, the rage burns inside, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. You see what both of these stories are teaching us today? Jesus, only Jesus, we just sang it, has ultimate authority. That's what these passages are all about. Jesus is God's unique, beloved Son, and he comes to humanity to redeem us and even though he may be rejected, 
he will be accepted by some because he is God's cornerstone. He is the chosen one to bring redemption to the world. This is a truth that we need to hear because all of those other competing authorities, even in our ears, are calling us away from Jesus to self-sufficiency. So, before we talk a little bit more about you know, what that means, let me just ask this question. Is, is this the only place, do you think, where Jesus' authority is put on display? Well, of course not, right? If you know your Bibles. In fact, if you know the book of Mark, Mark has already shown us this. I'm just going to read some verses without comment so you feel the force of this. Here's Mark 1.22. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority not as the teachers of the law. Or 127, the people were all so amazed that they asked one another, what is this, a new teaching? And with authority, he even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. Mark 2.10, when Jesus was healing a paralytic man, he said, I want you to know that the Son of Man, that's him, has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he did. Mark 3.15, Jesus appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. Now, that, that's just Mark's gospel where the word authority is mentioned. It doesn't have to be mentioned when Jesus is, let's say, on the Sea of Galilee during a storm, and he says, silence. <laughs> you don't have to say if you're Mark. And he said with authority. <laughs> Jesus controls demons. He controls weather. He controls forgiveness. Who is this one with absolute authority? That's why other scriptures say the same thing, like John chapter 5, where Jesus said, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Or John 17, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given to him. Two more. Remember the last words of Jesus on earth? before he went back to heaven? You probably know it, right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That says it all, exclusive, absolute, supreme authority. 
And that's why Paul can say in Ephesians 1.22, God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed him to be the head, the authority over everything. Jesus has ultimate authority. Scripture records it. So make sure that you're convinced of it. You know, I was just thinking as I'm standing here singing with you all, and we're singing about Jesus, I thought, you know, if, if somebody never even heard of Jesus and heard about, watched this on YouTube or walked into the service, they might think, this is really strange. Who are they talking? This is not a sports event. This is not, did somebody die and they're celebrating, a, you know, a life celebration service? Well, in some sense. <laughs> but... No, this is Jesus, the alive Son of God, who is ultimate King of kings. No wonder people for 300 years when Christianity was illegal gave their lives when called upon. Do you confess Caesar or Jesus as Lord? So, what should our response be this morning and tomorrow, and the rest of our lives. Well, first, let me just say, we've really got to understand that although Jesus' authority is real and universal, it continues to be rejected, opposed. Remember the rejected stone. So don't be surprised by that. That's the way of the gospel. Jesus was born in obscurity, he lived humbly. He was misunderstood. He was opposed, like we heard today, by the religious leaders. He was crucified by them and the Roman government. That's what Holy Week is all about. But his authority is genuine, even though it's contested by people whose sin stops them from wanting to lovingly come under his authority. I think that's important for us to realize. This is not simple to see. We have a built-in resistance to us. There's a bias. But even though that bias is there, let me remind us as Christians that we should remember that Jesus has total authority over the creation, the created world. I mean, he made everything. It's under his control because Paul says in Colossians, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things are holding together right now. Wow. He created this world for humans to enjoy, to manage for his glory. And the Bible says he'll refashion it. He'll clean it up someday at the end of history to make it the new heaven and the new earth. However, the stone of Jesus' authority over the earth is rejected, isn't it? You know that. Wars pollute God's earth. Scientists manipulate the human genome with possibilities from their authority and their imaginations. Computer engineers create artificial intelligence, proposing what? Some sort of new 
humanity. And for many of us, that's a little scary. Makes the science fiction movies from 20 years ago almost real. You know what I'm talking about. Social engineers try to redefine human gender as an endless experiment in so-called freedom. And godless evolution elevates random chance above divine design. And yet, we must never forget that Jesus Christ is the king with all authority over his creation. It's his. He's got it. Secondly, remember that Jesus has all authority over, could we say, human history, what goes on, not just the, the, the cosmos, the world, but the people that are kind of running the world. He rules, Jesus does, over every empire, every king, every president. Since he is the son of man, he calls himself that. That is a title from the book of Daniel, and Daniel 7 says, his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. However, the stone of Jesus' authority over nations is rejected. You know that. Just remember that our president has another ruler above him and every other world leader, from Russia to China to, to some other person who's on a city council in the smallest town in America or Australia, is under the authority of Jesus. Political leaders, yes, the UN may try to be some sort of authority over many of the nations on the earth. They're trying. But it's the united reign of King Jesus that is happening now. I know you may look at me and say, really? <laughs> yes, because Scripture tells us this. Revelation 1.5 says, Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, that's in Revelation 1. And it's, Jesus says that to a man who's a prisoner on an island under the Roman Empire. But that's the way Jesus' rule is now. It's contested, but it's true. It doesn't mean Jesus is frustrated. It means that he's allowing history to unfold. But it's always in his hands. There is no reason to worry. He's got, as the song says, the whole world in his hands, every leader. Well, now I've talked about the world, the earth. I've talked about out there. Can I just shrink it down to you and me? We really have to remember that Jesus has authority over your life right now. If you're following Jesus, I guess my question has to be, right, do you delight to do what he says, to follow his authority? Now, right away, 
it's almost like if I say the word authority, it's like we bristle with, yes, sir, right? Like, oh, the cops are here, and Jesus is the ultimate sheriff, and I've, I've got to, oh, no, hold it, relax. It's really, really important to remember that Jesus' authority is loving, not harsh. He wants the best for his people. He wants to guide us to green pastures because he's restoring us into his image. So don't, don't let your view of Jesus be of a slave master, but of a gentle shepherd. He's not the rejected stone that doesn't fit. Remember, he's the cornerstone that makes the building and our lives work the way they were designed to work. We were created to be, tapestry ladies, does that ring a bell? We were created to be under the authority of Jesus. He's leading us back to what it means to be fully human on God's earth. So, desire to follow him by knowing his word. The scriptures are how we learn about his laws and what it means to obey him. Now, sometimes, right, it's really hard to obey the authority of Jesus. And, you know, we're like Peter in uh, the book of Acts when Jesus said, hey, Peter, eat these unclean animals. Remember Peter's words? He says, surely not, Lord. It's almost comical, right? You're the Lord. You've just told me something, but I'm not going to do it. Well, we can laugh at ourselves, too, because we may call him Lord and not do the things he says, but it's kind of, right? Like, really? Can I remind you that when you feel that way, like, I don't want to do that. That's not in my best interest. That's when we've got to remember that the gift God gives us in making us his children moves our heart in his direction. Listen to what Ezekiel promised God would do in chapter 36. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. What a salvation is this? It's not like Jesus is up there and we're down here and we're trying the best. He actually comes into our hearts. He changes our wants, not totally, but in the direction that we will be totally. It's a down payment. So lean into that. Learn what his voice is like. And remember that not following Jesus disconnects you from that close fellowship with him and what he wants for you. So, you know, that's why Paul said we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. So what, what would that look like today? <laughs> Maybe when you're sitting right here. Well, first of all, I think it's, it's important to remember you got to 
kind of identify the issue. What is the issue here? And, oh, there's tons of things I could talk about, right? I just wrote down a few, like gossip. How do you talk, your speech? Discontentment about your life or your possessions. Or your appearance isn't the way you want it. Or your temper, your anger, or maybe something about the use of money. So find that, that point where your will or Jesus' will. And then, hopefully, you say, all right, time out. What does Jesus want me to do here? And if you don't know, maybe you've got to discover it. That's why we should be in the Scripture, always learning the will of God. And then there comes, what, what should I call it, the fork in the road? You know, the, the time... <laughs> at the crossroad where you've got to say, all right, I'm going to go his way or my way. And the outcome is either obedience or disobedience. And the fruit, the result of obedience is usually joy, peace. And it might be, if you go your own way, it might be joy or peace of a certain measure, but there's always that nagging pull of the Spirit of God to say, hey, come on back. That's not right. And then sometimes people only too late realize, what a mess I've created. And there's always the way back because your Lord is always with you to forgive and shepherd you. Finally, if you are here and you're not following Jesus, not like really following and obeying him, well, Jesus' words are, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And then he, he uses an authority word. He says, take my yoke upon you. Now, you know what a yoke is. It's a, it's a harness that connects two animals together so they go in the same direction. So Jesus invites us to take off the old yoke, right? Because we've all got, we're all going somewhere under somebody's authority, yours, your bosses, your families, your spouses, your friends, whatever. Jesus says, here's my yoke. And listen, I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, if you've never come to Jesus today, do it before you leave this service. I'll be up front here if you want to just come and talk, if you want to pray by yourself or with me. Jesus is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and He is your Lord, your loving Shepherd. Oh, Father, thank You for sending us Your Son. In our own hearts, Lord, we would have been like these Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities and put Him to death. But we thank You that by Your grace, You continue to give him new life and your people new life as we look to Jesus.
the King of Kings. So we crown him with many crowns. In his name we pray, amen.